week's guest is a real cracker. We have got the one and only Mr. Chris Lewis joining us. Uh, and I can't believe he's as old as his bio says he is. He's looking exactly the same as he was 30 years ago. How are you doing, Chris? I'm, I'm doing not too bad. Not too bad for a 90-year-old. <laughs> <laughs> You're still younger than me. <laughs> little bird tells me you've just come from the gym yourself. Yeah, I have. Um, I've kind of discovered that once I actually finish playing, that the only way that kind of alleviates the, the aches and the pains as you get older is actually keep doing something. So go to the gym, stay active, that sort of thing. So that's been a challenge through lockdown. Um, but it's nice that the gyms are open and it's summer again. So getting out just a little bit more. Got a regular routine in the gym? At, at the moment, no, because I'm just starting back and it's kind of whatever the body's up to at the moment. But I'm hoping within the space of a few weeks, it'll get used to it again and I'll do what I, I always do, kind of throw weights around and probably get people who are actually helping me to actually lift the weights rather than myself. But just at the moment, just slowly as she goes and we'll get there eventually. Yeah. What's your routine, Darren? Cup of coffee, bacon sandwich? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have a think about it, and then. <laughs> yeah. Listen, can can I can I just say before I went into the gym today, it was a bacon and egg butty. Oh, and beans. So <laughs> don't knock it. <laughs> That's called carb loading, isn't it? <laughs> it's called hunger. <laughs> so Chris, a veteran of thirty-two tests and fifty-three. ODIs for England in the early 90s, late 80s, you, were, you, you first started uh, your England uh, appearances? Well, no, um, late 80s, I started my county career. So 87, started at Leicester. And then on the trip of, uh, I think England went down to the West Indies, and that would be 1991, um, made my test debut. So the, the test part of it, the test career was, was through the 90s. How was your reception in the West Indies being a Guyanese-born man? There were a lot of emotions. Um, obviously, I'm excited because here I am about to make my international debut. And, of course, it's in the Caribbean. The family of <laughs> you know, grand, aunts, uncles, everybody is excited. But on the other hand, you're not quite sure, or I wasn't quite sure at that time, what the reception was going to be, you know. Um, and to be honest, there was a day in Trinidad where I was only doing 12-man duties. So it was warm. So I spent a lot of time walking around the boundaries, taking drinks to the different fielders. And on one of the occasions I went down there, there were some guys um, in a group and they were shouting. And I could hear them. Even with all the noise going on everywhere, I could hear them. And what they said was, was Chris... I see they bring you back to the West Indies as a waiter, as they do. <laughs> so I thought, I thought, okay, here we go. But at the end of the day, I was on the field, I think fielding for somebody, and the day's plays ended. And I saw them jump over the fence, and I saw them head towards me. So I quickened up a bit, you know, trying to run without looking like you're running. And they told me to wait, so I waited, and they come and they goes, he pointed at me and he goes, Chris, I want you to know something. 
We are very, very proud of you as a West Indian playing for England. Yes, do very well for England. And tomorrow, I'm going to be back right there and I'm going to give you some stuff. Yeah, because it's only quick. And that lighthearted moment right at the beginning of my international career just put everything as regards to that into perspective for me. It meant that I didn't have to worry about that. That I knew that when I went out and I played for England, that of course you were always going to give your best, but also that everybody wanted you to give your best. Not just obviously your team members, but also the people of the Caribbean where you where you actually came from. Um, so that was that was a nice touch, and that actually meant a lot right at the beginning. So you were born in Guyana, and you came over to England as a ten-year-old. Were you yeah. already playing cricket um, from Guyana? I think cricket was the only thing I could do when I came over from Guyana. <laughs> it was it was just it was just that time. Um, I grew up at the time. I was born in '68. So you're talking the Soberses and you're talking the three um, Ws and all those names are on everybody's lips. So I grew up hearing these names, not really seeing them, but just having them up there. And then of course, after that, you would say more my era, you're talking Viv Richards, you're talking Gordon Greenwich and so many others, you know, Mikey Holding, Ghana, Marshall, the whole work. So as a young boy, that's where my head was in the Caribbean. And it seems that's where everybody's head was, certainly when it came to sports. And I was I was no different. You know, the transistor radios at night listening to cricket um, everywhere. Um, so when I came, it was my love. It was the thing that I was looking around to see whether I could whether I could actually get into any sort of team, whether I could find friends to play. Um, it was perhaps more than anything else that cricket and that, you say, I would say Caribbean-ness at the time just came with me. As, a, as an all-rounder, I mean, I'm not suggesting that 10 years old, you knew you were going to be an international rounder, but did you have one sort of hero or was it a bit of Viv and a bit of Mikey? No. I wasn't, at that age, I wasn't, I was just not going to be an all-rounder. I was just going to be Viv Richard. It was, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to be Viv Richards. Um, I'd never seen Viv play, but I had an imagination from all the descriptions you get um, in my head. And he just seemed so cool. Everybody said he was cool. Even the opposition thought he was cool. You know, so in older games, that's the person I wanted to be. But sometimes there were older guys playing. They got to be Viv Richards. So I got to be Gordon Greenwich, um, which wasn't too bad. But at that time, I couldn't bowl. What I used to do is chuck a few underarms and wait for somebody to slug it up in the air so I could have a bat. <laughs> um, so I couldn't, <laughs> I couldn't bowl. I couldn't actually physically run up and hold my arms straight and bowl. <laughs> That came, that came later on. Worth waiting for. Yeah, it was the, listen, it was the thing that made the difference because unfortunately I was never going to be Viv Richards. Um, surprise, surprise. But in trying to be Viv Richards, I would say I learned which end of a bat to use. But that wasn't, I don't think, enough to probably would have made me uh, 
a first-class cricketer. Certainly, I wouldn't have said an international cricketer. The thing that made a difference, I think, for me was at about 15 or 16, the bowling started to come on. I started to bowl a little faster and people started to notice. And the reason I would say I was in most teams, um, first class or international, was mainly because of my bowling in the end. Was it true? Did I read that you, uh, you were at school with Philip De Freitas? I was Daffy, Daffy <laughs> Phil De Freitas was two years um, above me. Um, it was an interesting school. Um, as I remember at that time, there were so many, so many capable sportsmen. I think we were lucky at that time is that the sports teachers we had, Mr. Evans, who was the person who was uh, in charge of the whole school, the sports, he was a, a serious guy. And I mean, a serious guy in the sense that he loved his sports. So when it came to cricket, cricket season, games were organized for us to go and, and play cricket. So for me, I remember my first game at school. It was actually the first proper game of cricket I'd ever been involved in. In all the cricket I played in the Caribbean and Guyana, we just played on the roads. We just made it happen. We found a little fence and, well, you know what we do, you know, make a little bat out of it, you know, <laughs> as we do. And we just played cricket. I wasn't good enough to be in the school team. Um, at that time, well, I just played and I just played. I came to England. There was a couple of months before I started school. I just went into the garden, bounced the ball off the wall. So I almost think it almost didn't matter how good I was at that time. I was just playing so much cricket that I was I was getting better. So where was your big break to get into uh, county cricket at the next stage? Okay, I'm I'm 17. I've gone back to school because I don't know what, what I want to do. So I've gone back into the sixth, sixth form um, to try to get a little bit more qualifications. But my mom, for the first time actually, had paid for me to go to Lords um, over a weekend to get some coaching. I think it was just a way of getting me out of the house or whatever it was. And I went down to Lords and I was in the nets. I think it was over two days. I had lots of fun, batted, bowled, and then I got a call. You mentioned his name before from Philip De Freitas. Now, Philip De Freitas by this stage is at Leicestershire. He's playing for Leicester and he just come back from, I think his first trip away with England to Australia where they'd won the Ashes. And Phil called me and told me that uh, a guy called Ken Higgs uh, was interested in me having having trials and that sort of and that sort of thing. Um, but I was naive, I was a Middlesex boy, and I wasn't keen to go to Leicester. And in truth, I had to check up um, where Leicester was. You know? <laughs> but I think a month later, the phone rang again, and it was Ken. And he was offering me a two-year contract. Wow. Listen, wow a hundred times over. <laughs> because there you are as a kid growing up and you dream about that you never quite think that you're good enough to be that and you're at school you're still I'm still playing in the park um for Wembley Cricket Club and somebody just over the phone is now offering me the thing that the only thing I'd really dreamt about it was out of the blue it was amazing I think it was a, a great game of poker on my on my part not 
not going for the trial. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And literally in a couple of months, I'm heading to Leicester to be a professional cricketer. Again, that excitement and doubt, I'm going to be a professional cricketer. And here I am, that's great, that's brilliant. It's the thing I wanted to do. But are you good enough? You just been playing in the park and you weren't the person earmarked for this. And here you are, and you're supposed to be in the same team as David Gower, as Peter Willey. And it was like, whoa, this is exciting. But the other hand, it's uh, interesting to see how you how you fit into all of that, how, how you perform in all of that. You just mentioned a couple of names there. Um, you played in a real golden age of cricket. Um, England players, you mentioned some of the, the West Indian legends. The West Indies were still a real dominant force. And I think even, you know, around the world, the Aussies, the Indians, the Pakistanis, everyone seemed to have real heroes that are still held in high regard. Did it affect you at the time? Did you sort of think, what am I doing here? Or Yeah, for sure. Um, listen, the day I made my international debut was in Port of Spain. And I remember a moment, I think I came on first or second change, where Graham Gooch has given me the ball and I've got ready and I've turned around and I'm about to bowl in my first international. And I'm about to bowl to Gordon Greenwich, mate. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I just went, whoa, <laughs> I never imagined this. I just wanted to play cricket. I never thought I'd have to bowl at him, you know, or <laughs> something, something to, to that effect, you know what I mean? Where I was just sort of caught in, in headlights only for a moment because, of course, you've got to go and do your stuff. So you've got to forget that and still do the best that you're going to do. But at that point, I'm looking for signals to see if I'm good enough to be there. So here I am bowling to Gordon Greenwich, and I swear I had him at LB, but the umpire didn't give it. Shocking decision. But eventually, I think I, I got Desmond Haynes out. Um, so not a bad backup wicket. And it's that stuff in my head at that time going, okay, you can get Desmond Haynes out. So you can't be, you can't be that bad. You might be half decent, you know? Um, and that's just as a young person coming into that environment where, as you say, every team is littered with people that as a young boy, you were actually watching or listening to and you put them up on the pedestal. So I'm there looking for clues that I kind of belong in that company, that I can do it in that company, you know? Um, it wasn't something that I went in and thought, yeah, 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 I can do this. Um, it was more, wow, that's, that's Viv Richards there. <laughs> you know, wow, that's Malcolm Marshall there, yeah? And <laughs> having those guys so close kind of asks questions of you, uh, like questions like, are you good enough? <laughs> and, <laughs> those sort of things, <laughs> you know. So at that point, it was it was it was it was more that sort of feeling your way around, um, so to speak. But just feeling, at the same time, so fortunate that here you were living your dream. Here you were being a cricketer, and here you were um, in such a steam company. So it was again exciting times, but at the same time, just trying to find, I think, your balance and where you fit into that. And you got a Test 100 to your name as well, didn't you, at Madras? Yeah, <laughs> I, jammied, I jammied one when nobody was looking. <laughs> so I had my day where I got to be Viv Richards. 
hundred in I think probably 108 balls or 112 balls or something like that. Um, I gave it a good towel and yeah, for a day I enjoyed that. Um, I think still cricket wise, the moment I would go back to more often than any other um, scoring a test hundred. Puts you in something of an elite group, doesn't it? So duck in the first innings, ton in the second innings. <laughs> yeah, um, it was that it was that sort of trip. If you it's, it was quite easy to get a couple of little scores back to back. And you look at the average and you go, I need some runs from somewhere. Otherwise, this is going to be messy. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, I think during that trip, I think only two England batsmen got hundreds on that trip. Um, in the test I think it was myself and Graham Hick got a large hundred, I think 100, 170. But it was hard, it was hard work, as it mind you, as it's always been um, in India with the spin, with the wickets. And it was no different. It was no different then. Quite fearsome places to go. The crowd, well, like everywhere, cricket crowds were very different then. And, and I can remember seeing TV coverage of Eden Gardens, for example, and all these places. Fans going crazy and flares and firecrackers. Listen, I'll tell you what. I'm there. I've only been one tour. I'm there and I'm just, I'm just soaking it up. And what I mean I'm soaking it up is that my previous experience of that of that noise is a young boy with a transistor radio, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. And then here I am in the midst of it and you've got, you put in, the, the sound was always there. You put in the smell to it, you put in the visuals to it and you're going, this is what it was like. 50, 60,000 people shouting, screaming, makes your hair stand up, you know? It's again, it's one of those things where you're in this moment, um, it's a beautiful moment. It's something you've dreamt about. Um, but at the same time, you've got to stay with yourself because you've got to focus. You, you've got to focus, you've you, you, you got to play. Um, I think relatively speaking, that was relatively easy for me because the way I grew up playing cricket, it wasn't a quiet game, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of talking going on. There's a lot of shouting. There's a lot of music. There's a lot of everything. There's a lot of, of everything going on. So it was it was all right. It was all that I imagined it to be. Um, touring India, the people, the crowd, their passion for cricket, even the the difficulty in the conditions to to master it in the subtle difference from what you might be what you might be used to. Have you got a personal high point from uh, from those days? That Test hundred, but also it's that first time I played for England in in Trinidad. How many people, certainly at my time in the Caribbean, young men, dreamt of playing cricket and following all those heroes we spoke about earlier? Um, I'm not sure how many people believe they could actually do it. It was, a, it was a dream. I certainly thought that, you know. So that day when I made my international debut, it was the one. Yeah, that was, that was the day more than any. Lots of other games went on afterwards, but that first time to have accomplished that, that was a, a satisfying moment. But you're also part of another elite club, funnily enough, with Daffy, um, and with only one other Englishman. Uh, there's only three of you in, from England that have uh, opened the batting and the bowling in the same match. Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka, indeed, yeah. Oh, my word. Do you know, I remember the opening the batting in that game because, again, there was a lot of pride 
around that, yeah, that I'd been asked to actually open in the batting. Okay, a couple of nice fours, but overall didn't necessarily um, go as we would want it. But I actually never recalled that I actually opened the bowling in that same match. I didn't know. Definitely, um, I think. No, I like that. Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> Good research. <laughs> and then Daphne did it himself a couple of years later. Oh, wow. In, in South okay. Africa. I bet you could take that further and say two boys from the same school. There you go, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like that one. That might be that might be a little harder to break, that one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any yeah. guesses as to who the, other, the only other Englishman to have done it is? Okay, hang on a second. <clears throat> Both, of course. Yeah, exactly. Ironically, in Port of Spain. I've got to ask you, Chris, about the load times as well. So, um, big life-changing moment happened when, and we all know the story that uh, you got uh, arrested trying to bring uh, drugs into Gatwick and um, you served time for it, um, without really breaking up too many painful memories. But can you just give us your your thoughts on on that time in your life? It wasn't. It wasn't a great. It wasn't a great time, and I would suggest that more emotionally. Um, than anything else. Um, I'd finished cricket in my early 30s, um, not under good circumstances at all. And I wandered off doing other things, coaching and various different things. And then at 40, I had an opportunity or an opportunity was presented to come back and do 2020 cricket. And I tried to, to grasp that opportunity and it didn't work. Literally within the first game, I was injured and that was all over. And I guess I had a bit of a crisis in the sense that for the first time, I wasn't going to be able to play cricket. I was looking around at other possibilities. And while whilst kind of doing that, life was going on. Bills still needed to be paid, you know. Um, and I can't say I felt the pressure that might be saying it's from the outside. I what I would say is that I put myself in, in a situation where I felt very pressured um, right here and now in this moment to do something about my situation now. And that situation is really one where, how can I describe it? That if I needed to go to an interview, um, I wouldn't have the money to get there, you know? Um, now, I would say this, that Lots of people have been in that situation, in similar situations, and didn't resort to the extremes that I resorted to. You know, um, so I'm talking about how I processed that moment. And I started listening to conversations that I had no business listening to, that I'd never listened to. And in a short space of time, I was on my way um, to do that, not because I wanted to import drugs as such, but because I wanted what I would perceive as some sort of financial relief in that moment. Um, and I made that decision. And then the consequences, of course, um, that entailed after I came back, was caught, was sentenced, and all that in, ensued. But one thing I would say about that and it's not an attempt in any way, shape or form to put anything anywhere else other than where it is um, right here, is that 
there's a moment where I'm caught at the airport and all those sensible thoughts that you thought would have been obvious beforehand comes back and you just go, what have you just done? Yeah. And you can see the implications of what you've just done, not just for you, but all around you. Um, but in the previous six months, you were in such a state you didn't have that thought. You know, that's nobody else's fault but your own. Um, but that's close to that's close to the truth of it. Um, so scared about your situation that you don't see anything else. Um, but that that fear in front of you and trying to fix that fear. And in doing that, you create so much more, you know. Um, that was my experience of it. Do you um, do you think it was? Uh, this is really difficult to ask, but do you think it was yeah. a good thing that you got caught? Because you know, had you not, would you have carried on? That question gets asked quite a bit, and of course, the truth about that is that I don't know, no. because we're talking hypothetically. Um, but I would say this: um, I didn't want to be um, a drug dealer. Um, it was more a question of here and now, just having a bit of money in my thought process, just to create a bit of space in my head. The part about it being good, being cool, yeah, I would agree, I would agree with that because I sit here now, not necessarily, I wouldn't say because I've been punished, but I sit here now and the experience of that has taught me so much and I'm still learning from it. And I wouldn't give that experience back, which is the interesting thing. I wouldn't want that experience. I wouldn't choose that experience but now it's done and dusted, I wouldn't give that experience back because it's so informative on so many levels um, for me personally. I read that you said you were scared like a little boy when you first went to jail, um, but there's been a play made of your time in jail, um, The Long Walk Back. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm interested, to how, how, do you, how do you adjust to your changing situation? How do you deal with spending that time locked up and your freedom taken away um what uh, what was your coping mechanism i would say for the first year perhaps two years there wasn't really one um there was a lot of fears you i'm in a place where pretty much all the visuals and all the cues that you're looking at because of the way you're feeling you're afraid you have a tendency to turn into a nightmare so you end up living in this nightmare of your, of your own making where yeah, yeah. whatever comes into your view, you're in such a bad place, yeah? Oh, I've mucked that up, I've mucked that up, I'm never gonna do that again, I won't be able to do that. And you're just in this thing. And then eventually I found that it was too much. Um, I couldn't sleep. Uh, even though I was going to bed at night, I was waking up tired, I was having nightmares and perhaps all the things you would think that anybody would have. But I came to a point where I sort of felt that if I didn't get a, a hand on it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really survive. Um, I was feeling so tired, just going, I just need rest. And that's first thing in the morning, you know? But what I needed rest from was from my mental chatter. Yeah. And the mental chatter wasn't a good mental chatter. It was just stuff that you would churn, I was churning and stuff that I just wasn't looking on the positive side of things. 
because I, could, I, I couldn't see it. And I got to that moment and I realized that I had to find a way. So there was reading as just a distraction. Then from the reading, there was getting into uh, a bit of meditation. And the funny thing is that over a period of time is that all that same ingredient, the same stuff that you've been fussing over, um, I became able to look at that stuff without the same level of pain and started looking more on the positive side of things. Okay, yes, but what are you gonna do? How are you gonna approach this? And, and, and so forth. And it was just a, a subtle change that the stuff is the stuff, you are in jail. Yeah, yeah. You you have done this. You have yeah. done that. Yeah. Okay then. But I can do this. I can get to the end of here. Yeah. Then I can do this. Yeah. And it's just subtly changing that internal chatter how you how you're processing your own stuff. You know, um, that gave a gave a little bit of light, and then I went, okay, I can do this. You now do a lot of work with the PCA, and you have done since you came out. Um, and you, are you playing for the PCA? No, no, not not not, any, not anymore. The body isn't really up to much um, <laughs> where, where that's concerned. Yeah. And I'm not sure after the, this lockdown here, it's almost now two summers of not playing, and I'm yeah. not sure I'll be able to actually start the engine up again. Well, I might, weather permitting, I might be playing my first game in about five years on Saturday, so I'll let you know how that oh, goes. Oh, wow. <laughs> I, I, I feel for you, the pain in the evening. Yeah, I've talked to a lot of cricketers, young and, you know, getting on, and everyone's worried about what happens when cricket stops. And whether it's what happened with you, whether it's match fixing, whether it's sports betting, there seems to be an ongoing problem and it's nothing new of cricketers or sports people being vulnerable to bad influences. What do you think can be done to try and help that? Listen, I think personally, um, we spoke about the PCA. Um, you mentioned the PCA earlier. And I think the PCA as it is now has, from my understanding, a lot going on trying to deal with that. And the main way, and that's talking from personal experience, is when you're in that bubble of being a professional cricketer, everybody knows that it isn't going to last a lifetime. We also know that potentially you could pick up an injury that will cut short your career. Um, I think most of us think, certainly as young people, that isn't going to be us, you know, as you go along. Um, so there's always going to be a need to prepare yourself for that. I think in the past, there wasn't really that facility to do that to access whether that is educational courses and a whole host of other things. I think what the PCA are doing now, they are giving young men right from the beginning of their careers in their teens to older guys in their late thirties, the opportunity through their career to actually find things, to look at different things, to look at different parts of their personality and see what they actually enjoy. Yeah? And then get ready for that inevitable moment so when that moment comes, you mentioned the word vulnerable. So as a sportsman, you aren't as vulnerable because you aren't as needy. You've, you've got a plan, yeah? You've got a new profession. And even though that change can be still, still difficult, certainly emotionally, 
yes? At least you have something that you can actually pin your hopes on and say, I'm gonna do this and I'm qualified to do that. And it makes that transition a little more seamless, you know? And it's in those little, those bits there that issues can arise, you know? What am I gonna do now? How am I gonna do this? How am I gonna do that? And I think it's a lot of that potentially and a lot of stuff too that make uh, not just um, sportsmen. I think this is potentially a life, it's a life story because we all change our profession and we may all think, you know, what are we gonna do now? So if you're talking from an emotional state, that's a, a human being sort of thing, but certainly preparing yourself for the inevitable. And as a sportsman is that that's the moment where you're gonna have to make a change um, helps that um, in my experience or would have helped amazingly. Pretty interesting, isn't it? Because you, you're absolutely right that while sportsmen are in the public eye, everyone looks at them and thinks, wow, you know, how lucky you are. And then, and th this kind of came home to me this week when I read the story about Stuart McGill, who was kidnapped in Australia a couple of weeks ago or a couple of months ago. Um, and he's currently working as a, a restaurant manager. And you just, yeah. that seems, it seems strange. I think it's, it seems strange to people perhaps a little bit on the outside because of perception. So a person yeah. is an international cricketer and so forth. And I suppose, I'll use news term, the idea is, oh, they're sorted. Um, once he finished playing cricket, of course he's going to have a job. I don't know what job, but of course he's going to have a really good job and, and so forth. And perhaps even the sportsmen themselves can get caught up in that sort of, I think on their part, it would be a little bit of lazy thinking, so to speak. But the reality is, and always has been, certainly from when I was young, we played cricket during the summer and then in the winter, and that's from September, we were unemployed. So I was a postman, went away to Australia, and I don't think that comes into um, anybody's uh, perception as actually that was really, really going on. So after cricket... Um, it can be a real challenge or after sports, it can be a real challenge for a sportsman, especially if they haven't actually prepared themselves. It can be, you can get to a place where that big bad world outside can seem really big and bad and you don't actually see yourself as having a place in it or you don't see yourself tooled up to have a place in it. And that all generates anxiety and fear and, and so forth. But I think fortunately for me, um, eventually, I got the hang of, actually, mate, you are a professional cricketer and there's a lot of stuff that you know, yeah, that can help you on this journey, yeah? You've done this, you've done this, you've done that, you know? And for me, you start to piece it together and start to find perhaps the same level of confidence you had around your sport, around other things. This must be a difficult thing, I suppose, for... When you play to the level that you, for example, have played, where you get all the adulation and, uh, you know, coverage and you're put on a pedestal as being a top sportsman, I can understand for many people that coming away from that and then coming back down to earth, coming back to the real world uh, and starting again must be, unless you are a certain character, must be difficult. I tell you what, I wouldn't say I'm coming back to the real world because in truth, it's all the real world, if you see what I mean. But I, I, I do get the point in the sense that you may have set a standard, yes? And I think just generally I'll speak 
generally, if we set a certain standard, we don't necessarily want to fall be, um, below that, you know? Um, and whatever it is, it's, that, that can be hard. It takes perhaps being quite centered in yourself to process that quickly and in a positive way, you know, where it's okay, this is how you start again. Yeah, and you've learned this, so you know the process of learning. You're gonna to have to do this and do that, um, rather than being caught up in just the fear of it. Yeah. So you can so you can move so you can move through it. Well, I'll tell you what, we're gonna wrap it up because we've been talking for way too long and taking up too much of your time. But wow, really good to talk to you, Chris. I'm, I've, I've I've really enjoyed this, and it's good to see you looking so well. And uh, but uh, keep going on those uh, egg and sausage. Oh, 100%. That's, that's the payoff, you know, mate. It's got to be a payoff. <laughs> yes, I'll do the gym, but leave the egg, bacon and beans alone. Wonderful, wonderful. Chris Lewis, been an absolute pleasure uh, and, and a, a really enjoyable chat. So many thanks for giving us your time. Uh, and we'll catch up again soon. Guys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Take care.